Uh, greetings, friends. Happy Monday. It's Chapo Trap House coming back again. Uh, the lineup for a day for today is a little bit a uh, little bit skewed. Uh, Felix is on the uh, the injured list. He's uh, taking a sick note, so he's filling in for the role yeah. of Chris today, who is on vacation. But fear not, it's Matt and I coming to you. But we are joined by a very special guest. It's the author and podcast host Patrick Wyman. The, the podcast is Tides of History. The book is The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World. Patrick, welcome to the Trap House. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Well, look, Patrick, uh, before we get into the uh, the Renaissance and the story of how uh, Europe be- went from being a, uh, a wretched backwater of civilization to one that uh, ended up uh, ravaging the rest of the planet for the last few hundred years, uh, I want to talk a little, little current events. Um, and just uh, hopefully get a, a historian's perspective on this. And that is the uh, rather astonishing story to come out of Haiti over the last week involving the um, team of Colombian mercenaries, which apparently assassinated the Haitian president, uh, Jovenel Moise. And I like there's just there's just a lot of threads of this story that's fascinating. I mean, like the, the history of Haiti, um, but also like just the circumstances of this whole assassination plot. Very odd. Um, like Patrick, what do you make of it? So I think the thing that I zoom aside from the basic fact that like everything that's happening in Haiti now is downstream of like a couple of centuries of outsiders meddling in Haitian affairs to make themselves feel good about things and to make money for themselves. Like, I think the thing that stands out to me the most is the basically the privatized violence that that killed the president. That there are people who are whose services are available for hire on an international mercenary market who can carry out fairly like reasonably high level assassinations of important people. And I think leaving aside the impact on Haiti itself for just a moment, I think we're going to increasingly see that, that just that violence is, is going to increasingly be a thing that you can buy for a price. There, there are huge numbers of people who have the skills who are just like, okay, for X amount of money, I can do this terrible thing for you. Um, I think to some extent we're just seeing violence, uh, like we're seeing the state's monopoly on violence, um, slip away a little bit and it becoming increasingly a market commodity. And we're seeing that not only uh, with this, but uh, I believe it was last year, there was the Nissan executive, Carl Gozen, Mm -hmm. who was being charged with embezzlement and other uh, white-collar crimes from his time in charge of Nissan uh, in Japan, who escaped the country with the aid of private military contractors who put him into a, a crate and got him onto a private jet and then flew him to Lebanon where he has citizenship and where he won't be extradited. I've been like uh, following a lot of um, like sort of gang history in America, and it's really interesting how things have gotten to the place they are in America since like the early to mid '90s. Like, what happened in a lot of places is that like how public housing projects became like people would obviously like fight over who had the rights to like sell drugs there, and then the solution was okay, we're just going to demolish them. But it's like that doesn't stop happening like crime goes somewhere it doesn't just stop and all these neighborhoods that people don't think about are like a low intensity civil war and i used to think it was a policy failure but then i realized no that's the policy the policy is to like put this in a place where cops don't go where you don't think about and there's this like murder rate that's comparable to any like low intensity civil war or like country that's like kind of an unrest but it just 
it's you don't have to think about it because it's not like in front of you in the way that it would be in a housing project. And I think that's sort of like that's going to be sort of the future with countries. Like there are going to be places on the periphery that you just don't have to think about. And on one hand, that's going to be where a lot of our cheap labor pool comes from. But on the other, you know, it, it's it's a good place for yeah people who are on the higher end of states or of state violence services to apply their trade. And apparently, apparently, like these mercenaries were for from Colombia, which is like you know the the one stop shop for mercenaries, which is like all a byproduct of the last like the longest civil war I think ever fought. Yeah, was in Colombia. Uh, and then, like, we've been funding their military and training these operators for years and years and years. And, like, Felix, to your point about, well, even if you demolish the building, the you know, like, the, the violence and the crime, it has to go somewhere. And the exact same thing is true with all these dirty wars. And, like, this, like, Patrick, like what you were saying, this sort of, like, uh, gig economyification of assassinations, like, putting it on Fiverr. Like, hey, I need to kill the Haitian president. Can I get 20 guys? Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the other rub, the other interesting thing about this story is, of course, that the hiring of these mercenaries is apparently linked to a firm based in Miami and yeah. maybe not the exact same one but like certainly one very similar to the one that tried to pull off that like ridiculous Keystone Cops coup in Venezuela a couple years ago there's one of the things that's really fascinating about this is the way in which like small conflicts just feed one another all over the world that like it's the same people going yeah. from place to place to place to place over decades and decades. And it's like, so even if the Wikipedia entry for a, for some particular conflict ends in 2014, it's not like the people who were fighting in that thing like stopped existing in 2014, you know, like like the Chechen dudes who spent uh, the better part of a decade shooting at Russians in the Caucasus just went to Syria and went to Iraq uh, to fight for ISIS and Colombian mercenaries who spent two decades, um, you know, fighting, uh, fighting in a civil war are now just available for hire. And it's like these things are you just create these long-term mutually reinforcing cycles of, of small scale or potentially larger scale violence when you have these wars. I mean, so something that's um, we've kind of like replicated what the Saudis have always done, which is that there's this like endless pool of young men that you can send all over the world. Like that was that's what they had instead of like a formal intelligence body. They had like just like military age males where it's like, okay, if you're really religious and we send you to prison, we're going to send you to like Chechnya. We're going to send you to Syria uh, just so you're not a problem here. And it's it's sort of perfect because you're not you don't have extensive paperwork or relationships with these people, but you have enough of one where I mean it's the Gladio thing where it's like, okay, if you do exactly what I want, great, but if you don't, that's not really my problem. And that's just that's kind of what everyone does now. Like it's such a good system for nations with any type of resources that everyone's kind of copied it, even places that do have a more formal intelligence thing. And now what we're seeing is like, it's sort of, it's sort of being done by like non-state actors. Like we can't really get to the bottom of this one yet, but it, yeah, it wouldn't be surprising if this is like, you know, someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone is in this, but you can't exactly like draw a paper trail all the way back to where you want to draw it. I'm just like I mean I just like to like add another element to this that's fascinating to me and like this is this is speculation on my part but it's like it's it's very hard to you know suss out like what the possible motivations for something like this would be I mean outside the obvious but remember like Colombian journalists who have been checking up on this story 
have reported that the family members of the people who have been killed or arrested in Port-au-Prince are claiming that they were hired by the security firm to be to work as security for uh, uh, Jovenel um, uh, Moise um, instead of killing him. Now, obviously, like their family members would have reason to concoct a story that would exonerate them in such a way. But it, it brings to mind, like, if these guys were like a team of highly professional trained operators like wouldn't they have been fucking out of the country like the minute after they shot this guy because like apparently like after they did this their plan was to like okay let's just hold up in the airbnb we rented in port-au-prince <laughs> until this all blows over and it's then like very, the whole fucking country laid siege to them like, like these guys were professionals it's very hard to imagine them going forward with that uh unless something unless at some point there was some degree of a double cross you know, like they got they got double crossed at some point. I don't see how they would go into that. Okay, what do we do? We shoot him, then we drive to the uh, yeah Airbnb and we play fucking Jenga. <laughs> like you, they wouldn't say yes to that. Like that wasn't where they thought they would end up. One theory that I saw advanced uh, was that he was actually that uh, the people who killed uh, the president were like his staff. Yeah, uh, were, yeah, were were actually already there, and that those guys are the patsies. They they like. It was like dialing Oswald. They called up a private a contractor to bring some guys <laughs> who could just take the fall. Uh, because, I mean, the question of who to kill this guy, uh, obviously everyone, the first assumption is the United States, but, like, this guy wasn't like Aristide. This is the pro, uh, you know, neoliberal client guy. Entrepreneurial guy, after, guy yeah. After yeah. We, they ran Aristide out of there the second time. Uh, but he had also, he was also... Um, refusing to step down after the end of his constitutionally ended term and his refusal to do that was creating a, is and is still creating a huge uh, a wave of demonstrations which parenthetically have gotten a f- essentially 0% over the course yeah. of months now uh, 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 press attention compared to the whatever the fuck CIA operations are happening in Havana. Cuba right now. SOS. So that's yeah. an interesting. That's an interesting uh, contrast. This has been going on for months. It's getting bigger and bigger. And like there, I read an, an interview uh, with a uh, with a Haitian journalist saying that like there are like lumpen proletarian uh, like social bandit gangs like turning into forces of like revolution. In the streets ar- around this stuff, and in that a condition, the the most likely tar- the most likely candidate is someone in the high, the the, the ruling class of Haiti. Like, okay, we gotta we gotta nerf this guy, like the like the Dominicans did with Truillo with CIA help in the fifties. Uh, Patrick, though, but like from like a broader perspective, like in terms of just the history of uh, like American interventions in Haiti uh, under the guise of humanitarian relief or whatever, how has like the history of Haiti as an independent nation, like since its revolution, been? I mean, it's a it's 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 a source of a lot of uh, you know misery and horror, but like also as a symbol of freedom for basically the entire Western Hemisphere. Yeah, the. The story of Haiti is really fascinating because there's always the counterfactual of like, what if the United States had not been so incredibly invested in making sure that Haiti could not be a success story? Like that the idea, I I mean, it's hard to overstate how freaked out American slaveholders were by the prospect of an enormous slave rebellion right off the coast of the United States. Like that this is, it's not just a, a threat to an economic system, it's also an incredible ideological threat to their whole way of life and their whole understanding of how the world is supposed to work. So from Haiti's very beginning, there's this sense that we we can't let Haiti 
be a success. There's got to be tariffs. There's got to be sanctions. There's got to be eventually direct intervention in Haitian affairs and just, you know, landing Marines there for, for decade after decade after decade that like there's, there's no way of understanding Haiti in the present day that doesn't draw on on this these long series of antecedents, this long way in which the United States has just been fucking with it. And France too, I mean, but but the United States France got fucking right reparations. There. Yeah. France got reparations from Haiti for the crime mm-hmm. of uh, liberating themselves. Yeah. I mean it's like it's it's incredible. Right right? Like that there's you know I just it, it makes me think of the like development economists and, and, and right wing economists who are like, well, you know, what is it about these third world countries that they just can't get their act together? Why? Why are their institutions? Why are their institutions so bad? Like, I don't know, man. It's a complete fucking mystery. Like, just can't figure it out. Yeah, it's like you, you, you shoot someone in the kneecaps and then hand them some crutches and are like, hey, walk it off. Yeah, it's the there's the there's this. um one of those real famous anthropologists who went to who went to South America, uh, this guy Holmberg, right? So he wrote he wrote a book about um, one particular group of of natives and um, about how primitive they were, and they're basically you know they they barely wore clothing, and th- as it turned out, these people were refugees that like their their entire way of life had been destroyed by ranchers who had taken their land a couple of decades before, uh, and it's like. So this guy Holmberg shows up and it's like interviewing concentration camp survivors and coming up with a with an idea of what Jewish culture in in mid 20th century Europe was like. And that's how I feel whenever we talk about Haiti. It's like, well, it is the way it is because of this long interconnected series of ways in which we've been fucking with them. Well, I mean, yeah, it just seems like uh, they've never stopped being punished for having a successful revolution, like the only Mm -hmm. successful slave revolt in the Western Hemisphere in the history of, you know, slavery in the the Americas. And, uh, well, I mean, it's just, uh, it's it's a really, a pretty astonishing story to come out of Haiti. And uh, that's what I've been uh, just sort of fascinated with this week. But I I don't want to belabor current events too much, Patrick, because uh, we want to talk about your book. Uh, The book is... The Verge. And I'll just begin by asking, like, okay, so the book opens with a very, like, an incredibly cinematic depiction of the army of the Holy Roman Empire sacking Rome. Um, So for our listeners, maybe you could explain, why why did the army of the Holy Roman Empire sack, burn, loot, rape, and pillage everything in Rome and the Catholic Church. What's up with that? But also, like, how, how, does, how, did, how did this, this historical incident, like how, how did, like, how do you, like, how does this express, like, the thesis of your book? And, like, why did you choose that to open, uh, open with? So I, I chose it because I think it encapsulates everything that, I think it encapsulates every major process that happens in this era. In some ways, it's, it's the kind of natural culmination of the decades that had come before it, because you have the army of the Holy Roman Emperor um, sacking the city that belongs to the Pope uh, in uh, in just incredibly shocking, violent, and disgusting fashion, right? Like it's, I mean, it's real vicious. They, they're, you know, they're burning people alive in buildings. They're, they're selling nuns on the street for a coin apiece. Um, there's blood running in the gutters. Uh, they kill the captain of the Swiss guard in his bed in front of his wife. It's like, the, it's, it's just a nasty, disgusting series of events. But it's the entirely logical conclusion of what had come before it over over about 30 or so years. So the army of the Holy Roman Empire sacked Rome because they hadn't been paid, 
right? So the problem in this period... Folks, if you have a giant mercenary army, the most important thing mm-hmm. is that you have to have the money to pay them. <laughs> that's, I mean, but that's exactly, the, that's, that's exactly the conundrum of this era, is that you get the ability... States grow the ability to raise increasingly large, violent armies that are comprised of highly skilled professionals who get really good at this extremely effective way of waging war that revolves around pikes, um, early handguns, cannons, um, fighting in tight formations. Like these guys are fucking professionals. They're really, really good at what they do because they just go from campaign to campaign to campaign from year to year to year to year. So there's this enormous store of institutional knowledge and ways of doing things. There are a ton of these guys. They're all available for hire. They all want to, they all want to march off the next year. They all want to take somebody's coin and, and march off to war. The problem is after they've initially been hired, cause they're all hired on credit. Like the, there isn't a lot of actual cash that's changing hands here. It's a, it, it's all a series of credit transactions, credit from the individual captains who are hiring the soldiers from the big captains who are hiring the small captains to the Kings who are contracting with the big captains. Everybody owes everybody money. The money itself is not actually there. So as it turns out, these guys in this particular army are raised for a, for a campaign in Italy in, in 1527. It, there, it's going to be a big campaign. It's a big army. There's 16,000 Germans who are marched south over the Alps. That you got the the Spanish garrison from uh, from Naples. That's part of it. Spanish garrisons from Lombardy. The Germans haven't been by the time they start marching towards Rome. The Germans haven't been paid since they left the year before. The Spanish guys haven't been paid in 18 months, and they essentially just stop taking orders. So the only way for the commander of this army to keep them together is to say, okay, if you guys just kind of stay together in this army, eventually we'll get you paid. But until then, the Pope is on the wrong side of the alliance that we're currently a part of. Let's go and see if we can shake him down. So they go to Rome, they go through a series of negotiations, to try to get Rome to pay some sort of ransom. Those negotiations fall through and eventually they just end up assaulting, assaulting the city and sacking the city. And so this is a thing that's happened all the time over the prior two decades, sacks, murders, um, horrible things happening to civilians. Um, it's a really common thing. It's just, this is the most, it's just, this is the largest incident and the most famous one. And it's the most symbolic because it's the holiest city in Christendom. The Pope is fleeing. Um, a lot of the soldiers in this army, especially the Germans, um, are are Lutherans. So they've picked up they've picked up Protestant sympathies in the past several years. So they're doing things like stabling their their horses in churches, um, using their arquebuses. They, uh, to, I believe they 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 killed one priest because he wouldn't give communion to a donkey. Correct. Yes, they killed a priest and, because he wouldn't <laughs> give communion to a donkey. Um, you mentioned all of the the horrible atrocities, of course. Uh, none worse than when you said uh, these Lutheran troops used. Uh, Holy relics as targets, shooting lead balls into ornate reliquaries and the sacred heads of mummified saints. Yeah, I mean, will the persecution of Catholics never end? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, like wait, wait. wait so, Patrick, what year was this? Like fifteen twenty seven? This was that was, was fifteen twenty seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you read uh, Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall? I have. Yeah, I love that book. Okay, like so, like the, that. The events in that book take place concurrently with the sacking of Rome and the Pope Clement fleeing, and it's 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 wonderfully portrayed in that book. But it's like always alluded to because it's happening so far away. But it is this like apocalyptic moment for the Catholic Church, and it precedes, of course, Henry VIII's uh, you know uh, splitting with them. Yeah, and it's actually the the reason why Henry VIII can't get his divorce is because the his uh, is because he's related to the uh the the king of spain charles v by marriage 
Charles V, the king of Spain, after this is holding the pope hostage. So the pope won't grant a divorce to Henry VIII as long as he's a hostage to the relative of Catherine of Aragon. Uh, yeah, it's just like it's 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 a really violent encapsulation of everything that's happening here. And in my mind, the thing that makes this period stand out is that it's basically about money. It's about finance. It's about the the ways in which the ambitions of Europeans and their capacity to do things outstripped their ability to pay for them. And so it just unleashes these kinds of apocalyptic currents all over the continent um, in, in some ways that are obvious, like sacking a city and in other ways that aren't that aren't quite as obvious, like just a proliferation of printing presses pumping out disinformation. More fake news. Uh, you mentioned the uh, my one of my favorite uh, you know weapons of the era, the, the arquebus. And, you know, for anyone listening to this, if you see me in traffic or on the street and you try to roll up on me, try it. I keep that arquebus with me at all times and I'm going to put a fucking a ball of lead the size of a fucking Myers lemon through your chest if you even try it. Yeah, Will keeps that I'm slow not gonna match be ca- I'm not going to be caught lacking. I will not be caught lacking by the Duke of Bourbon, Pope Clement, or any of these goofies. <laughs> you, always, that's, you always have to keep your slow match burning just in case. <laughs> but I... Uh, I, like you, you, you coined like what is it? What is a you? You reference this thing called like the Great Divergence. Like what? What is the Great Divergence, and how did like uh, how do these the, these currents lead to? As I said, Europe going from being by the civilizational standards of the era, uh, not exactly the peak of what we would call human achievement, to dominating the next several centuries of the entire world. Yeah. So the the Great Divergence is one of the central historical questions of the last 500 years or so. It's basically why in the 19th and 20th centuries do European empires end up dominating the globe? What is the what is this the causal sequence that leads us up to that? And historians, political scientists, economists have answered it in a bunch of different ways. Um, There are people who think it's a fairly late development. It only really happens with industrialization. There are people who think the roots of it go all the way back to the Roman Empire or even before. Um, Some people think it's about resources. Some people think it's about culture. Um, I think it's mostly an accident. And that's what this book is really about. I think it's about this particular 40-year period where things really spiral out of control very quickly, driven by kind of deep, a combination of deep structures and totally and totally contingent events, accidents of birth and death. And what you end up with by the end of it is a massive increase in scale. So at the beginning of this period, Western Europe is it's a backwater. Like nobody, there are no, nobody wants to go to Western Europe to get anything. Like sure they got nice cloth, but like, it's not worth traveling that far for nice cloth. Like, you know, like there are no, uh, like Dows from the Indian ocean hauling up in Lisbon. There are no junks showing up in Seville. Nobody, nobody gives a shit. Um, when Vasco da Gama goes to India to buy the riches of the East, you know, silks and spices and, and precious gems and all that stuff, he shows up with like a tub of rancid butter, six hats, and it, I mean, it's like, I, and, and some coral. And he's like, and he tries, to, he's trying to trade for They're like, it. buddy, we can, we can give you a teaspoon of cinnamon for this bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it took you three, 10 years to get here. Yeah. They look at him like, they, they looked at him like he's a crazy person. And that, but that really encapsulates like where Europe was relative to the incredibly sophisticated, commercially advanced civilizations of, of especially of the Muslim world. And so, but what we see by the end of this period is the beginnings of colonial empires, right? We see the fall of the new world empires, the, the Aztec and the Inca to Spanish conquistadors. We see the beginnings of the Portuguese presence in the Indian ocean, like a future in which Europe 
Western Europe is dominating the globe is visible, even if only faintly by the by the end of the period that I'm talking about, whereas at the beginning you would have laughed that out of the room. So I, the I, I think this is a kind of a turning point. I would call it a critical juncture, like where a whole bunch of stuff happens very quickly and you can you can change some big things. You can lay in some some foundations in a relatively short period of time just through the pure kind of conjunction of events. I think that the uh, the the area the era of time you're talking about the verge point is 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 really it really is this moment that's incredibly thick with historical contingency because this is when things start happening that move faster than people can anticipate and start uh, changing things under people's feet in a way that uh, that is really unprecedented. Uh, but uh, I think it's interesting, and you talk about this a lot in the book, how uh, you can trace how that explosion occurs in a context of that geographically determined reality of medium state competition in Europe. Like the reason that these things that are around and have been around throughout many uh, areas in Europe and hell were already to be found in China long before start getting stacked together by these states uh, in competition with one, one another, that that motive that constant need to 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 uh, defeat and to uh, uh, expand at the expense of your uh, neighbor necessitates the the uh, use of these things that uh, should be handled with care because of their destabilizing uh, uh, powers. But essentially, at, at eventually, you run out of the ability to choose not to use them because. If they can be used, they will be, and if not by you, then by your opponent. Yeah, there's, there's just, it, it's just this constant feedback loop uh, where, where if you, if, if I'm going to raise ten thousand men, my opponent's going to raise fifteen thousand, and if I, my opponent's going to raise fifteen thousand, well, then I got to raise twenty thousand, and this goes on for decade after decade after decade. The Italian Wars, this long sequence of conflicts, start in 1494 and end in 1559. So that's 65 years of more or less continuous warfare carried out by the largest states in Western Europe. And in the middle of that, there's also conflicts with the Ottomans. There are internal civil wars and peasant uprisings. There are all sorts of other kinds of conflicts that don't even meet the criteria of what we would call great power conflicts. There's local wars between uh, between lords who don't like each other. There's all of this is happening simultaneously. And so. Western Europe is just this incredibly war-torn place where nobody has the money to pay for any of this. So it's all just being done on trust and credit. It's all like, okay, we I, I know you don't actually have the thousand ducats, but you can owe me and we'll come up with ways of paying for it down the line. And so when the currency actually does roll in, when they do get larger amounts of gold and silver, it has a multiplier effect. So this is what happens uh, with, with Charles V when, uh, when the treasure starts showing up from the New World early in his reign is it's not like he uses that to clear his debts. He uses it to take out larger and larger and larger loans. So even though he's getting enormous sums of blood money from, uh, from South America and, and Mexico, all of that money is just immediately being poured into more wars and more conflict. Boy, they, they, they say history rhymes with the present, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like it's just putting just putting war after war after war on on credit cards and just and and trusting that that things are going to work themselves out somehow and the people who need to get paid will get paid. And they did. It worked. <laughs> yeah, it worked. Thank great. God for uh, that that new world they got there where they could just 
build capital out of human misery outside of uh, like their own borders. Really helpful there. Yeah, I just uh, just, you know, four centuries of resource extraction after that. I mean, four centuries as as the beginning of that four centuries of direct resource extraction. And and one way uh, one one uh, very important uh, contrast that shows this point is that you have a chapter in the book about Suleiman the Magnificent and the apogee of the Ottoman Empire when it looked like they very well could have gotten to Vienna and beyond if they'd really wanted to. Uh, and uh, you talk about the uh, the creation of an Ottoman state that was what every European monarch dreamed they could have. And it's what Charles V tried to do in Europe. But you you make pains to point out that it was the very things that made the Ottoman Empire so enduring and powerful is what mean, meant it was doomed to be overtaken by Europe because there was no expediency within the system. There was no real life or death competition the way that uh, the, that dominated European statecraft. Yeah, they never ended up with that kind of fiscal multiplier effect, right? Because if you're if if you're Charles V, you would much rather have Suleiman the Magnificent's finances. You would much rather have his administrative apparatus. It's just better. Everything about it is better. You know, you'd, you'd have like, his, you'd like much rather have his cool name. You would much rather have his cool name. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't be named for a guy who got split in half by a halberd on a on a winter <laughs> battlefield like that as as Charles was. Um, like it would. It, you would much rather have been Suleiman the Magnificent because the Ottoman Empire is heir to like three different highly developed administrative traditions, like the Mongols, the Byzantines, the Islamic and, and the Islamic states of the uh, of the Near East. The Ottomans have access to all of those administrative traditions, and they've got really efficient ways of doing uh, of, of doing fiscal exactions. They've got ways of making sure that if your army is rolling through your territory, they're not going to loot your own people. You can just direct tax revenues in kind to feed them as they go. Like, so you're, when, you, when you raise an army, you're not at risk of destroying your own territory as they pass through, which is not a given in the context of 16th century warfare. So like, there's no question who you'd want to be. But because of this, because of this surplus, I mean, they were running budget surpluses year after year after year. They never had to develop these uh, fiscal tools to maximize their revenue. They could just say, okay, well, the next time we conquer somewhere, we'll use that to pay off this small loan that we had to take out to cover a shortfall. So you never end up with this multiplier effect that, that you end up with in Western Europe. You never end up with this increasingly sophisticated and high level, basically alliance between financiers and the political class at the top of, of Western European states. And that never happens in the Ottoman Empire because it doesn't have to happen. Everybody is motivated by debt. Mm-hmm. They have that debt like spike in them in, 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 in David Graeber's book debt he talks about how all of the uh nobles who made up the the like the horse cadres of uh cortez's conquistadors were all wildly in debt yeah. and, and and uh at, at risk of like losing their entire you know station in life and and that's what drove them to those boats that's what drove the the uh monarchs to get the funds to send them on those boats Mm-hmm. That's why they burn the boats to keep the <laughs> keep the creditors away. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's that's one of my favorite like tiny little anecdotes about the uh, the the whole era of exploration is that the the ships the the two caravels that Columbus took um, the the Nina and the Pinta were actually a tax payment in kind from the seaport of Palos because they'd been dodging their taxes. So instead of having to actually pay the sum of money to the crown, they were just like, okay, well, we'll give you these two caravels. You can give them to this this shithead who's sailing west into the Atlantic. If we never see them again, okay, that's fine. We've cleared our debt. Everybody's happy now. 
That's how movies used to get made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like everybody in Western Europe owed everybody else because nobody had coin. And so like no matter everywhere you look, you just see these cycles of debt and uh, of debt and credit and repayment that are all predicated on jumping toward the next thing, whatever the next thing is. It, it creates like a really powerful and destructive motor where nobody really cares what the consequences are. Everybody is just looking for their next way to stave off being imprisoned for debt or kicked off their land or losing their title or, you know, having your army of rampaging mercenaries destroy a city. So yeah, like you mentioned some of the some of the big names from history that, that turn up in your book, you know, men men of uh, Suleiman the Magnificent's caliber, Martin Luther, you know, men cut from their cloth. But there's also some uh, some lesser known. So I'm just gonna go with uh, uh, who the fuck was John Heritage, founder of the Heritage Foundation? <laughs> John Heritage is honest to god my favorite character in this whole book because uh, so he's a wool merchant. And he lives in uh, the English countryside. He lives in Gloucestershire in the late 15th, early 16th centuries. We only know that John Heritage exists because his account book survives, right? So the accounts where he kept, he listed all of the transactions that he made where he would go around the countryside buying up wool from individual shepherds. And you can just see him like standing there chatting over the gate with some guy while the dog's barking, like getting getting mad because he stepped in sheep shit. Like you can just see this guy out there going about his business day after day after day. He's a kind of a common sort of guy and we don't normally get access to him. The fact that we get access to him tells us that he was completely ruthless and he gets his start in business by kicking his peasants off their land that he had, he had worked this patch of land for a long time. His family had, and he plots to dispossess the peasants and turn what had been farmland into sheep pasturage. Um, so 60 people lose their, lose their ancestral family home so that this guy can run some sheep on it. And it's part of a process called enclosure. That's central to debates about how we, how we understand the emergence of capitalism in England and in Europe more broadly. Uh, so Heritage is a participant in this process. You get the feeling nobody liked John Heritage very much, but you can just see his business year after year after year. And what's striking is that he's just typical. He's just a guy out there doing this stuff. But like wherever you turn, if you were to find their account book, you would find more John Heritages. And that's the thing that's really striking me about Europe at, at this point in time is like it's not just about big name people. It's that these instincts, this kind of not caring about who gets hurt by, by your actions, as long as the cycle of debt continues and the cycle of repayment continues, you can even see that with a wool merchant. Like where else are you going to see it? So the winners, uh, well mentioned Martin Luther. When you, uh, when you talk about the, the reformation, uh, both in terms of its, uh, effects, uh, on, on, uh, Europe, but also, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's it's uh, theological effects and it's cultural effects, but also the effect it has on the printing industry. How do you see uh, the Re- Reformation as like uh, as central to this process? Like, what does the Reformation do at this time to propel Europe in the direction it goes? So the the Reformation and printing is a really interesting thing, and it's almost a cliche at this point to say like, well, you know, the print uh, the the Reformation couldn't have happened without the printing press because the church couldn't control the flow of information. The printing press was central to the Reformation, but not for that reason. It was central because printers figured out that they could make money by printing 
religious tracts. They figured out that there was an audience for this stuff because prior to the Reformation, printing was always looking for a business model. Like more in the in the last decade of the 15th century, more books are still being copied by hand than are being printed on a printing press, even though the technology has been around for half a century. It's hard to figure out a business model where everybody is happy with printing because um, it's speculative. You don't know where your audience is. You don't know who's going to buy these things. It requires huge upfront investments. The Reformation is a godsend for printers because they figure out that if they just print these little pamphlets that have, you know, it's like one sheet of paper, you you stamp a woodblock print on there, everybody's going to buy them, you're going to sell out in a day, and you can then print another one. These little tracts with their, with, you know, eight pages from one folded up sheet of paper, that, that little woodblock print, are full of really inflammatory stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that pulls people in and gets them invested in the Reformation as a process. Because it's really easy to imagine a world in which Martin Luther gets pissed off about indulgences, he prints this thing, and then it becomes a little debate that occupies a tiny segment of the European clergy, which is mostly what European reform movements were. There are all sorts of these kinds of things where scholars get together and they debate, you know, what, what are we doing with purgatory now? Is purgatory a thing or is it not a thing? Um, <laughs> occasionally you get, and occasionally- Oh, you better believe it's a thing, buddy. Oh yeah. Well, if- You're, as We're long, living in it. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely in the church's financial interest for purgatory to be a thing. And so like, but you end up with all of these little debates about it. There was no guarantee that, that what became the Reformation was ever going to be a thing that anybody aside from this tiny Latin speaking- educated segment of the populace was invested in. Printing is what made it a thing for everybody else, because as it turned out, Martin Luther was really good at writing these short, punchy, inflammatory, um, really angry kinds of tracts in the vernacular. So people who only read or spoke German could pick them up, read them, and all of a sudden they were invested in the Reformation. And they became the new market for printed works to be sold to. Like they're, they're getting used to the technology. It's like you buy an iPhone and there's one app that you know how to use. Well, now you have an iPhone, right? And now you can get more apps. You are a person who can be sold an app. Um, that's what happens with printing in the Reformation is all of a sudden it creates a whole new class of readers and consumers of printed material that didn't exist before. Uh, was Martin Luther the original poster? You know, I know it's sort of a cliche to say at this point, but I mean, I mean, the, the, the similarities are striking, you know, trolling the Catholic Church, etc. Yeah, I, I really uh, honest to God, I think Martin Luther would have would have done great on Twitter for like four years and then he would have completely melted his brain because he like the, the Martin Luther's defining characteristic as a person was that he could never let a challenge go unanswered. So, and, and he always had to win. He always had to get the last word, which would lend itself very neatly to a medium like Twitter. It's what made him so good at pamphlets because somebody would say something, Martin Luther would write back, they would say something else, and Martin Luther would write back. And that's how the Reformation develops. It's not like big statements of faith about this is what we believe and we're Protestants now. It's no, Martin Luther was pissed off that somebody said something. So Martin Luther said something back and it just kind of got more and more it's, and it, more it's extreme. It's forum stuff. It, it's for forum yeah. war. Yeah. That's that's exactly um, what the Reformation is. That's how we should understand it. Um, like speaking of the Reformation, like I mean, how do how do you view the Reformation and like uh, like how do you how, do you do you view it as like instrumental in the creation of what would become capitalism? Like like would capitalism have developed in the way it did without like I don't know the the, the pro Protestantism for the you know? Um, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure I have a great answer. I think that it played a role 
in a few, I mean, I think it played a role in a few different ways, but I think that there were already a lot of capitalists running around Europe. And this is one of the, the kind of central things that I wish I had been able to spend more time in, in the book is like the Europe is full of capitalists. It's full of people who understand how they can make money by investing their capital. They think in monetary terms. They think in terms of productive investments of their their funds. That like this is this is their mindset. Their mindset, guys. They're and on Europe, that grind. They're on. They are exactly. They're on that grind. And this mindset has diffused. It's all over Europe. It's with that Gloucestershire wool merchant. It's with a mercenary who's thinking about how he's going to buy a castle with his pay from this next expedition that he's going on. Um, it's all over the place. The question, the, the thing that I always have a hard time answering is when we cross the threshold from having a society with capitalists to a capitalist society. You know what I mean? And I'm not sure I have a really good answer to that. And without having a good answer to that particular question, I'm not sure I can answer how Protestantism figures into that. You know what I mean? I think that, yeah, you can't. It's it's difficult to point the time because it is this process of an inflection point being reached, mm-hmm. you know. But but picking pinpointing it, all you can really know is that there is one, not necessarily what it was. You know, you can argue about that all the time. But the thing that uh, what what Protestantism I think contributed most to capitalism was to provide. Uh, a, a social solvent, really, that, that could mm-hmm. reorient people's uh, understanding of themselves in relationship to things like money, these abstract mm-hmm. notions, uh, because there was a lot of stuff in Catholicism that made it hard to do capitalism, that, mm-hmm. that were predicated on like a, a, a social fabric that was more important in ma- it was more important to maintain than uh, to cre- to allow in the efficiency of capitalism that might undermine it. That's why you had things like, uh, oh, we'll we'll have the Jews do the money stuff. That's perfect. Then we can maintain a a uh, a godly you know community. But uh, once you need to start treating people as strangers in a market, you really have had like a metaphysical. You have you have you have undergone a a, a spiritual transformation in the way you view the world and Protestantism. I mean, not didn't emerge to do that, but over time was put to that purpose by the emergent capitalism that's being generated by all this conflict. It definitely made it easier to do that. It like removed a layer. It like removed a layer of uh, uh, it. Re- it like removed a layer of friction yes, from all of exactly. these transactions. That's 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 the best way up. I can. Yeah, that's it the best way I can deals. think of to put it. Because ev- even though you have like very like capitalistic merchant bankers in Italian cities, even in like the 13th, 14th centuries, right? You have these guys who are doing this, but they're genuinely concerned about the state of their souls. They know that they're doing usury. They know that it's bad. They know that they're supposed to go to hell for that, right? So that's why they they increasingly make these like huge donations because they're nobody wants some like Franciscan standing on the street corner haranguing them, talking about how they're like going to hell for this like that's a, that sounds terrible somebody banging uh, pots and pans in front of your window all night exactly there so there really is in medieval europe this this like social sanction for greed that is it, it's present it's not all encompassing it's not all powerful but it does exist and it does play a role in regulating people's behavior and which and, and matt i think what you what you're getting at and i think what's absolutely right is that when when you have protestant places the barriers to that kind of stuff fall away. Yeah. And you get an increasing embrace of the idea of wealth being good on its own and a product of kind of thrift and hard work and all the stuff that God wants you to go out there and do that, you know, Weber's Protestant work ethic, right? Like, and then that version of Christianity gets to be the one that 
sets the cultural and uh, political economic terms for this new continent uh, that that is then settled by the most uh, the most efficient Europeans at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I the it's it's really hard to overstate like how fucking weird the Puritans were in the context <laughs> of 17th century Europe. Like that's something Americans take completely for granted is that like everybody thought these dudes were weirdos. They all <laughs> thought they were weird. And so we're like, if they're in, you know, kind of baked into the foundational cultural and economic DNA of the United States, like we come from weird stock as a nation. That's they were like, the people who had reasoned themselves out of believing in God anymore and then had to like <laughs> re-reason themselves into believing in God. It's like, okay, shit, I got to the end of this equation and God isn't real. Okay, I can't stay out there. That's not viable. So let's get to work. And then they rebuilt a belief in God purely out of reason and rationality and out of logical syllogisms and then had to spend their entire life manifesting the belief in that thing. It's like Rock, uh, Rocco's Basilisk. <laughs> So just these absolute nerdlingers just like trying to do math equations to keep believing in God. And everyone else is like, dude, what is wrong with you? Settle down. Have some ale. Watch a Christmas pageant. What the fuck? <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Maybe maybe put a wall painting on your church. I don't know. I don't know. Like, it yeah, doesn't maybe, have to have be you heard of vibes? Religion is, is a large percentage vibes. And you are killing them. And then they said, well, fuck you. We'll create our own vibes. And then they did. And it, they fucking sucked. The vibes sucked. Uh, see more about those vibes in the film The Witch. Yes, exactly. <laughs> then shall you be banished from this plantation's liberties? I would be glad on it. How sadly hath the Lord testified against you. Oh, my God. I love that movie. It's so good. Oh, it's awesome. I guess I just like, my, my last question here is like I, I just want to just like just just ask just like broadly just just uh, open to any commentary you want to you want you want to add just about Charles V. I know this is one of Felix's favorite uh, historical figures and uh, world leaders, but just Charles V as a character, a, a person, a historical moment. So the the most outstanding thing about Charles V is his jaw, which is just it's out there, it's real out there. Uh, it's uh, contemporaries like wondered whether he could actually hold his mouth closed because it was so <laughs> deformed by inbreeding. Uh, it's uh, it, like. The there's there's a line from the English ambassador to to the court of Castile in like 1516, and he writes home and he's like, the king of Castile is an idiot. That's that's the only way. That's that's the only way that he could sum it up. There were they met that were, medically. Yeah, and he, they, he met that he met that medically. Um, the the most outstanding thing that people noted about them was that he didn't talk because um, he looked like an idiot when he did it and his tongue would kind of hang out of his mouth. And so this is the guy. So this is the guy who is the most powerful Western European ruler since Charlemagne, just the finest product of the finest gene pools of the finest Royal houses in Western Europe in the 15th century. This is the guy you end up with. And there's something really fitting about that in my mind, because we don't like, we don't have to look at Charles V and pretend that he's a great man. We don't have to be like, look at what this guy accomplished. Look at what he did. We can be like, this was the product of like decades of structural consolidation that put this absolute fucking just guy on the throne of, on, on like a bunch of different thrones and gave him the capacity to immiserate multiple continents. Like it's a, Genetic consolidation as well. <laughs> yeah, it really, because like even on the, the side, uh, his, his uh, the Spanish side, 
Isabella, uh, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon were already cousins. They were both Trastamaras. So he's the product of multiple layers of continuous inbreeding over generations that were going to get worse from there. That's the really <laughs> stunning part to me is like it was going to get worse. Yeah, no, he makes, uh, yeah, he makes Carlos V look like King Arthur or the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's just like, I, and that, that, that's the really liberating thing about having him is because he's, he's the last substantive chapter of the book is talking about Charles V is that like, we don't have to, it, it, it frees us from the burden of even pretending that we have to like think that great people drive history forward through their individual agency, which is bullshit to start with. Right. But like if this guy who is supposed to be the most outstanding of them all in terms of the, the, the capabilities that he has at his disposal, if he's a total fucking idiot, like in the way that all the nobles of this day and age are total fucking idiots, like that, that tells us something really important about how history works and how causality works that like, it's not contained in, you know, long-term plans or destiny or the agency of great individuals. There's something else happening here that should, that should tell us that should give us some insight into the past. That's why like, uh, probably my favorite movie about history or how history actually works uh, per your point is a uh, duck soup by the Marx brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's all just, it's all just like capital G guys doing stuff. And like, there's a, uh, did you ever watch the series Rome? Uh, oh yeah. God! Oh, okay. oh my God! Okay. Yes. So how it's more nudity? That, more nudity per minute than any other HBO uh, prestige drama of the I, era. More expensive than any other TV show, but more nudity than any other historical epic. You really got what you paid for with that. Uh, there, the scene in the scene early on in in Rome when um, the attack on Mark Antony is sparked by Titus Pullo having gotten in a bar fight with uh with with some dude in a wine shop like it was like supporters th- of Cato or whatever <laughs> yeah that like this is he was one of the one of uh, one of Pompey's soldiers a uh, Pompey Pol- Pompey yeah. Pulley had uh, Pullo had knifed to, uh, had knifed this guy's friend in a bar and the the guy was trying to attack Pullo not Mark Antony and that's this is how we get the disintegration of the the Roman Republic I think that's a much more accurate portrayal of how historical causality works than the idea that like people sitting on thrones make decisions that drive the course of history forward. A question like it's like like all, all this book and like like you're you're writing this in in, in the present and in twenty 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 one and like as a historian you're writing about like a, a series of decades that like in in hindsight. Um, you can see the way that like they, they shape the world that we live in today. I mean, it certainly seems like you know it's impossible to do in the present moment, but it certainly seems like you know we as a as a culture, an economy, uh, a country, whatever you want to say, are, are just being hit with wave after wave of like world historical level uh, crises or, or shifts that that we're currently experiencing and undergoing. Like as a historian, like uh, like what do you look for in our present moment? for things that could conceivably be, you know, theoretically in, in a future point, be like a verge moment that like we're currently experiencing now. So I think that's, I think that's a really good question. What, what I, I look for, and, and this is true, I think of historical periodization in general is that you should be looking for clusters of things that happen around the same time. That if you wanted to find the end of one era and the beginning of another, you want, you want clusters of things that, that happen that in seemingly unrelated fields that you can say, ah, yes, we're, we're doing something different now. And I think you can do that about the present. The one that really strikes me for the pandemic is the fairly sudden reminder that like 
workers think their bosses suck and you don't just have to do the shit that they tell you to do all the time. Like you can quit your job. Um, you can ask for more money like that. I think that's a really huge and fundamental shift that has been decades in the making and has now kind of exploded into being um, purely as a result of this contingent set of circumstances. So there are structural roots to it, but there's contingency in the sense that who knows whether this actually would have happened or not um, without the pandemic. And so it makes, I, I think that particular thing is one example that that makes, um, that, that shows us how a critical juncture can work and how it can happen, that it's a combination of these long-term trends toward immiseration of working people, plus the exogenous stimulus of having a, of having a, a massive pandemic that makes clear that these people's lives and, and work is not valued the way it should be. Like, so I, th that's one that I think about a lot that you can, that I think you can see the roots of it, that if decades from now we have a more successful labor movement, I think we'll be able to trace it back to this specific set of circumstances. Well, to transition out of uh, the Renaissance to, uh, you know, we, we're talking about, um, as Dan Quinn would say, the genetic bitches of the past. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I was hoping, Patrick, you, you could join us now in um, an examination of uh, one of the genetic bitches of the present and uh, join us in this week's reading series, which comes courtesy of Henry Olson of the Washington Post. Headline, J.D. Vance is scaring America's elite. Good. And I would just like to say for listeners here, uh, th this article is illustrated, the headline photo, under the, uh, the idea that J.D. Vance is scaring America's elite, is a photo of this his chipmunk face soy facing. It's just a chipmunk-like soy face. And th this is the visage that is sending a chill up the spine of elites everywhere. So J.D. Vance, longtime friend of the show. We love his book and movie. Uh, let let's, let's hear about how he's uh, uh, scaring Scaring. He's shaking things up. So this is Henry Olson writing in the Washington Post. Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance is being attacked by critics on the left and right for his populist economics and his changed views on former President Donald Trump. That's a good sign that Vance's message is getting through and that he can win. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so right at the back, I'd like to know a little bit more about what his populist economic policies are. And I also like that he just sort of... Uh, he, he lets it slide real quick. Where he's like his changed views on Donald Trump. <laughs> I love his views on Donald Trump. I saw him naked in the steam room, and I it, he brought me around. I mean, no, like, the, the entirety of the of the populist message is it's uh, forcing your grandkids to like your Facebook posts. That's it. It is all posting related. It is a consumer revolt about not being uh, not having enough views on your posts. Because you're old and nobody wants to fucking view your posts because posting is for young people. You should be rocking on a fucking chair, Grandma. Why are you on the Internet? But they are, and they want someone to tell them that they're good at it, and they want the that person to be the government. And that's it. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the, uh, with the hating uh, capitalism or, or going against corporate power. It is whoever is in charge. I don't care if it's the phone company or Amazon. They have to like my posts. Yeah, he says, uh, 
his changed views. I mean, like J.D. Vance, he, I mean, this guy's just like another Glenn Beck. I mean, he was a guy when Trump was running for president who was like, this is indecent. He's unfit for office. He's a, he's a threat to everything that conservatives hold dear. And then he became president and everyone liked him if you're on the right wing. And then he's just like, oh, actually, um, he's a pretty good president. He's done some good things for, you know, the people I care about in the hollers or whatever. It's just like, shut the fuck up, dude. No, it turns out they still like him. We were hoping <laughs> yeah. we, we thought that the media might have enough of a disciplinary function on the broad right wing of America that we could make Trump unpalatable to them. Nope. They like him. And every effort you make to do that made them like him more. So now you got to like him, J.D. That's it. That's all it is. Uh, Olson continues here. Uh, Vance has some qualities that most politicians lack these days. Thoughtfulness <laughs> and an authentic <laughs> they're definitely Chin is not one of them. <laughs> yeah. Thoughtfulness and an authentic willingness to speak his mind. I've known him since before his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, made him famous. He's the same person now as he was then. He is deeply concerned about the state of working class people of all races in today's hyper-corporate, globalized America. And he hasn't surrendered his mind to polls or to the donor class in an effort to fit in. He is what he has always been, warts and all. And he's offering that to the people of his home state with the belief that they will sooner trust a person like themselves than they will yet another ambitious politician twisting to meet prevailing political winds. Okay, I mean, like, that describes... I mean, we've just established that he just, yeah, absolutely he's like, hey, put himself into a fucking Trump? Twizzler yeah whatever you guys want so i i especially like the idea that he hasn't surrendered his mind to the donor class no just a single donor just peter thiel just that one. <laughs> the, the guy who literally <laughs> wants <Yeah>. your blood <laughs> nothing to worry about there the the blood baron has chosen him as his as his <laughs> protege no reason to be concerned that if if the palantir guy thinks you're the horse to back i don't know i i don't know that that would be a real big endorsement for me but that's just me like these people are supposed to be shitting their pants all day about the intelligence in this, uh, the intelligence community and the surveillance state. And actually, look, all the leftists don't care about that stuff anymore because they love uh, big tap fucking teal Palantir, which is just the number one contractor for every piece of the surveillance state. Like the actual apparatus of it is all subcontracted to guys like him. I've uh, I've decided that I I love JD Vance now. <laughs> um, I love him because he's like. He's like what? He's like 40 something, right? He's like one of those guys who's like, it's very rare where he looks so bad, you can't tell what age he is. <laughs> like, usually that's a compliment, but it's just like he's so like bad looking in a timeless way. Like, he, as a fully like a grown man, he looks like a fat 19 year old forever. He just has one of those faces. I fully respect that he's the type of guy who grows a beard so that it hides the second and the third chin. Like that's yeah. its sole purpose. It's not Care, careful, Patrick. Careful. <laughs> <laughs> no. So there's a difference yeah. between having the there's a difference between having the beard for for purely to hide the second and the third chin, and that being a nice uh, and that being a nice accoutrement. I, I, I'm speaking from experience here. I like how like he's doing this for like an audience of no one. Like, it's like what he's doing, he's demeaning himself so badly. Like, this, like, Yale guy who, like, you know, drinks stem cell smoothies with Peter Thiel going out there and being like, um, a latte? Yeah, how about a beer? And just, like, no one, no one likes it. Like, it's, I love that. Well, I'll, I love give, that. Him, I'll give him bombs a modicum of credit. Maybe, yeah, if he's trying to do that to get people to like him, yeah, he, that's the most sad, pathetic strategy of all time. But if I were him, 
If I were J.D. Vance, if I was in that position, and I was that much of a fucking dork, much of a pencil neck, uh, who even in a movie where, uh, based on my book, and I'm the main character, I come off like a pudgy little bitch. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing yeah, like to think the, that that the movie worst is not main like character a of all satire yeah. of this disgusting little pustule. Uh, if I was him, I wasn't gonna. I'm not gonna think. I'm gonna cozy up to the MAGA people. What I'm gonna do is I'm going to rattle the cage of the online left enough so that they talk about me all the time, and then make the MAGA people notice. Oh, the the libs hate this guy. Maybe if we vote right. for him, they'll get mad. That's his I best know. hope. But the problem is because of his demographic and his instincts, he can only try to get the online left mad who these people don't fucking give a shit about primaries voters in Ohio. They don't fucking care. This guy and, and is Felix not, has just said not part him, of the so. cycle of names that these idiots care about. And all yeah. of those are related to things like Trump and the fucking election theft and shit like that. They like Jim Jordan. They don't fucking know who you are. And, 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 and they're not paying attention to the fucking dorks on Twitter who are making fun of them all the time, like us. Yeah, no, Ohio Republican primary voters, you know when you see someone who has like eight podcasts in their bio and it's all the same <laughs> podcast, basically, it's like the, the guillotine hell world week. <laughs> and like the only people that subscribe to those are Ohio primary voters. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so uh, continuing, he writes... Uh, critics claim the opposite. They say Vance is a man who in 2016 criticized Trump and then shifted his views to suit his political constituents, his potential constituents. On the one hand, that's rich. If criticizing Trump in 2016 disqualifies a person from office, precious few Republicans would still be around today. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, that... <laughs> Um, it says, uh, former White House chief of staff Mick Mulvaney went so far as to call Trump a terrible human being in 2016, yet Trump overlooked that insult to name him his top aide. On the other hand, Vance says Trump's performance in office made him change his mind and that the views of his potential supporters who do like Trump shouldn't be ignored. Why shouldn't we take him at his word? I mean, why shouldn't we take him? What would he have to gain by lying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what Jeez, would be the incentive? It doesn't make sense. Set a lifetime of honesty up until this point. Uh, the anger and vitriol behind some of the attacks on Vance belie the real motivation for them. Vance calls out big corporations for hollowing out U.S. manufacturing, sending jobs overseas, and making themselves and their educated hangers-on, the lawyers, financial mavens, and others, rich in the process. Perhaps his critics don't like that he says what most Americans of all ideolo ideologies think, that the powerful have moral and social obligations to other Americans that transcend the pure pursuit of profit. The nerve of this guy. I mean, yeah, I mean, like most normal people do believe that, but J.D. Vance certainly doesn't believe it. I mean, he went right out of the fucking uh, Yale Law School to the internship at the American Enterprise Institute. <laughs> Come on, man. Well, the, the, these guys have this idea that there is a, a like intellectually consistent argument for some sort of populist nationalist uh, republicanism that will get basically everybody without a college degree to vote for them. Uh, and they think that because of what Trump was able to do. But I think what they have vastly underestimated is the degree to which that is not ideological. These people are not operating out of a, co for the most part, because mo very few people do, operating out of some sort of coherent political analysis of the situation. All of their feelings, which are connected to things like deindustrialization, are being filtered through their culture that they surround themselves with. That's how they understand these things. And Trumpism, I think the evidence is pretty clear, is about him. It's about Trump. 
and and it's like the degree that it has any staying power coherently is the degree that they can maintain itself around that whole the the phenomenon of him because it is a, it's a phenomenon it's not an ideal these people are not looking oh look jd vance he's actually got a coherent uh critique of capitalism from the right like no they don't give a fuck they want the circus barkers they want because that's what politics is and that's who votes in these elections is people who have fully assimilated cap, po- uh, politics as something to be uh passively observed I, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about Vance in particular, but you can see it in this op-ed here, is the need to have an intellectual justification for hierarchy that that you that okay we can have social betters as long as they have obligations to the people below them one of the things that trumpism did was it embraced hierarchy without the sense of obligation and that it's just like some yeah. people are better than others and deserve to have good things happen to them you my friends are among those good people who are higher up on the hierarchy you don't need to justify it with all of this bullshit about obligations nope. you can just say you're better and justify that on whatever basis you want. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And that's like, that's where you can tell that Vance is out of step is that he needs it to be ideologically coherent in some way, shape or form. When the beauty of Trumpism was just tapping into that raw id that's present. Like, like they're, they're guys at my weightlifting gym who God bless them. I don't talk to them, but I listen to them talk because it's, it's deeply fascinating, but like who are convinced that Trump is the only person who's going to defend their right to have a gun, which they believe every single American should own and carry at all times. Like that's, and which is a fair read. And they like, they're, they believe that that makes them superior and better to their fellow Americans. The, this, these couple of guys. And like, that's that to the extent that that's coherent, it's just about superiority. It's not, it's a thin justification. Yep. The guns are ancillary to their, to their exalted position on the social hierarchy. Yeah. And, and, and the difference between guys like Trump and the politics of Trump and the politics of guys like Vance is that guys like Vance are still worried about the teacher grading their paper. They're worried that like, that they're not, that they're not meeting some sort of uh, obligation to, like transcendent notions of like, uh, yeah, uh, intellectual consistency, ideological uh, coherence, uh, you know, the, the voice of the teacher, basically. And, and guys like Trump are actively oppose that entire concept. And they are hostile to the, 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 the notion that there can be anybody judging them. Any no, any transcendent social notion, any people in any, the teacher is out there. It's like, fuck that. Uh, like the, Trump was at CPAC in Dallas giving his speech and he's talking about uh, how they impeached him twice and how they thought like they were going to get him to behave. And he says, I got worse. <laughs> that was so I got that worse. So good. They went wild. We want to impeach him. We're going to impeach Bill Barr. We're going to impeach him. He became different. I understand that. I didn't become different. I got impeached twice. I didn't change. I became worse. Like he he has inverted their value system and that has freed him. He's free. And if there's one thing you can notice is who are the people who are really in this and who aren't, it's how free they are. It's how free they are to not give a shit and in fact orient themselves against any sort of social uh, uh, obligation or, uh, or monitoring or, 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 or values that are not their own. 
And then you got nerds like fucking Vance trying to fucking uh, carry the two on this shit, and nobody yeah, fucking it's, cares. It's the difference between having an intellectualized ideal of social and natural order and having a purely gut-driven idea of what natural and social yeah. order is supposed to be. And for guy, for people like Trump and those who are most suited to follow in his footsteps, there's there's only the raw bleeding sense that they're better, and. That and mm-hmm. that whatever ju- any justification is ex post facto, you know, it's like it's the mm-hmm. the like you start from the assumption that you're better and reason outward from there. You don't take some sort of objective evidence and have it lead you to the conclusion that you're better. It's just like the to the extent that like the racism is incidental to Trumpism. It comes from that. It's like we're we're looking. We already know that we're better. All of that is just reasoning is just reasoning outward from that basic assumption. And because J.V. Vance and guys like him are, at the end of the day, meritocrats, they believe that they're that through like a ritual of uh, of the accumulation of social habits uh, and the the pursuit of certain certifi- certifi- certifying check marks, uh, you become worthy of position mm-hmm. in a hierarchy by by literally doing your homework, and and of course the end result of meritocracy is. It's the same situation that you had with Charles V. You have a bunch of fucking uh, uh, slack-jawed dipshits. Like, our ruling class is as as mediocre at best as Charles V was, even though we're now supposed to have been, you know, operating out of meritoc- meritocracy for the past 100-plus years. No, we've got the same thick-headed dipshits in charge because it just... Over within a generation, meritocracy just reinforces genealogy the same way old traditional hierarchies did, and so we're at the same place with with the third sons and the dipshit inbred mutants in charge, protected by technology and social structures. And if you're up there or you want to be up there and you want to defend it, you can either make up little fancy uh, pageants for you and your friends to carry out to validate it, or you can just fucking do it. And which people would prefer uh, is pretty clear. Which more fun, you know? And, and, and the people who don't find it fun, the people who need the little ritual, that's the Puritans. <laughs> Those are the freaks. Yeah. The ones who need to be fucking <laughs> yeah. doing math problems all day to prove they're good people. <laughs> and it's like the right is losing their uh, them very much. Like those people are becoming liberals now. But guys like J.D. Vance are like the last carbuncle on the horse that is slowly being eaten away. Olson continues, uh, the left opposes Vance because his views would deprive them of their chance for really big government. No one attacks Senator Elizabeth Warren for using her privileged perch at Harvard Law School to become one of the nation's most prominent left-wing populists. Uh, excuse me, Henry Olson, I think you should check our back catalog, uh, sir, before you make a sweeping assertion like that. But no, uh, he goes on, um, that's because she is pushing social democracy, the form of economic regulation that is acceptable in media and academic hallways. Yet, because Vance, who was educated at Yale Law School, expresses a populist anger over economic decline that doesn't include yet another expansion of government, they claim he is not an authentically working class candidate. Anger on the right stems from, his, from the naive belief among conservative intellectuals and commentators that the Trump era was a mirage and that free market fundamentalism can now resume its reign at the top of the conservative politi- policy hierarchy. These pundits want Vance's smart economic populism to fail because they know their goose is cooked if he wins. I mean, again, I, I would just like a description of what this smart economic populism that they're talking about is like. How do we, like, a, what, 
like in the absence of a really big government, I mean, where is this new economic policy populism going to come from? Tax cuts for small businesses and maybe yeah. a child, uh, maybe at the very late edge of it, a child care tax credit or something. But he hates those. He hates child care stuff. So I don't know because he wants to be like he, he's, he wants to talk about the need for, you know, people to be able to choose single parent families, even though that would require people to get higher wages than people like Vance and his uh, overlords want to pay them. With a May 3rd primary, the race is already crowded with more than 10 declared candidates and a few others still waiting in the wings. Ohio's Republican primary law does not require a runoff, so whoever gets the most votes will become the GOP's nominee and presumptive favorite. With such a crowded field, a candidate could easily win with only around one-third of the vote. That's a standard that is easily within Vance's reach. Recent contested Republican presidential primaries in Ohio show how this is possible. Both Trump and Rick Santorum received roughly 36% of the vote in their 2016 and 2012 presidential campaigns, respectively. They both ran as economic populists, and Santorum was also a favorite of evangelicals and conservative Catholics. Santorum swept most of the state's rural counties, losing narrowly to eventual nominee Mitt Romney because he lost in the state's major metropolitan areas. Trump also did well in rural counties, but was particularly strong in Ohio. Ohio's South and Southwest, the Appalachian region that harbors depressed coal and manufacturing communities. The state's three large cities and their surrounding upper income suburbs cast less than 40% of the vote in the 2018 GOP gubernatorial primary. Vance's message of anti big tech social conservatism and anti corporate economic populism is tailor made for the other 60% of the GOP electorate. And finally, Olson concludes by saying Mr. Smith isn't supposed to actually go to Washington. The fact that Mr. Vance could is scaring America's bipartisan elite. Good. I mean, like yeah, this guy who's been just 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 cosseted in uh, like Yale Law School and like the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute. Man, he is a fucking uh, he is a threat to America's ruling elite. And as you pointed out, Patrick, a, a, such a threat to big tech that entire his entire backing and political career is funded by Peter Thiel. What a, what, a, yeah, what a shock that a guy who's funded entirely by Peter Thiel would find a political platform based on attacking all of Peter Thiel's competitors. I mean, the, the thing I just I, I mean, I try not, I try to avoid reading op eds like this usually. And so I'm baffled by its existence. Like, who is it? it you guys got to answer this for me. Who is this for? Who is the What is the type of guy that reads this and is like, you know, that was a really well considered point made by. Uh, what's this fucking guy's name? Uh, Hen Henry Olson. Henry Olson. I gotta say, I think the audience is us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is written for us to react to. I don't feel too bad about it because that's not going to work. JD Vance is cooked. And even if he was, it's like, who gives a shit either way? But like, he's, he's not, he is not the American Caesar. So I'm not worried about him being unleashed on America. If he fucking wins the primary or not, it's but like I think their strategy is get the libs talking about J.D. and how they hate him. And then if enough of the people who vote for these things hear that, they're going to be like, well, guess what? I'm voting for him. Does, will that make you mad? Please tell me it will make you mad. That's the only the re way I reason I get up in the morning anymore. <laughs> the libs hate J.D. Vance so much that they turned his fucking vanity memoir into a vanity movie that they was, tried to get nominated for an Oscar. Like, like a safari guide to an imagined category of Americans. Well, see, that's what I'm talking about. Like, they can't, they can't quit like middle brow prestige culture. He can't do it. He needs the validation of people who read Oprah book club books. 
And if he needs that, he can never be the 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 incarnate demon that he would need to get the to get the humors going and to get people uh, caring about him. Yeah, the as much as everybody wants to look for like who Trump's natural successor is going to be, it's just going to be some screaming guy, just a just a perfect encapsulation of rage and hate and uh and grievance just raw grievance that's the only person who can tap into the same kind of sense that trump did it's not like gonna be some overly intellectualized law school grad like if this person went to law school they spent the entire this hypothetical person they spent the entire time boozing and uh and and running over small animals in in a bmw like <laughs> yeah. that's what they did in law school they, they weren't paying attention they weren't getting clerkships if if democrats and 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 the libs out there are worried about that that theoretical figure in the future who comes and out of nowhere to to channel the 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 the, the grievances and id of uh, Trump's America, uh, there is one figure out there currently who I think represents uh, their only chance of a a, a bulwark to uh, prevent this 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 wave from crashing over them. And I am of course referring to Matthew McConaughey <laughs> because I I think this guy. I mean, it's already he's already shown that he is out polling both uh, Beto O'Rourke and whatever. Who's the current governor of Texas? Uh, Abbott. Patrick Greg Abbott. Abbott. Uh, Greg Abbott. Yeah, Patrick's the other guy. Uh, yeah, he's out polling both of them if he decided to run for governor of Texas. And you know, maybe if he just does that, if, just line him up, and if, if the Democrats court Matthew McConaughey and just get him on his sort of like, as Matt was saying, just a campaign of just pure vibes, of pure feel good vibes about America. Like he released a July Fourth message on Twitter. That he was just like, it, it, you know, it was about, you know, uh, celebrating America as a revolution, but also just like instead of being like, oh, we have to talk about all the bad stuff in the past. He was just like, always got to get stronger, always got to be braver. That's what we just got to do as America. And I thought, you know, McConaughey, he, he's got something. And he I think McConaughey represents the future of politics in this country. If someone is if there if there is a, you know, a, a, a Richelieu figure out there who's willing to scoop him up and sort of pull the strings. Absolutely. And I am that man is what because I'm saying. Matthew McConaughey, please. The, the call problem me. with Trump is and uh, the reason that tr the Trump show had to get canceled is because he riles people up too much. You do you needed to you need somebody who is famous, somebody who has charisma, somebody who just dominates uh, with their personality. And the only the way that a movie star or somebody of that equivalent fame can but they can't be always riling people up like trump they have to be smoothing it out reminding everyone it's okay so like as the walls close in and as like the sluice gates open and the human abattoirs open up they're just like <laughs> you just have this soothing calming voice just like telling you parables and stories about shooting sahara <laughs> and, and uh and and like you know just saying like kind of nonsense stuff like well, you know, uh, I, I always uh, say that, you know, uh, when you walk a mile in your own shoes, uh, you get to know other people better. And you just <laughs> hear that and be like, yeah, you're right, as the captured bolt gun goes to your forehead. Uh, that's why we're going to have President The Rock in 2024. Yes, I mean, I, so honestly, it's, it's his for it's, the taking. The if you want it seems clear. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like would he have to declare a conflict of interest with his tequila brand at that point? Like, how would that work? Would he have <laughs> he to would, like Jimmy Carter? Trust? He would have to divest from the peanut farm. But the Rock would have to, you know, well, McConaughey has his, his long branch bourbon. He'd have to get rid of that, too. <laughs> oh, tragedy. Wait, wait, no, no, he doesn't. Trump didn't do any of that shit. No, no. So, like, they was, no he's going to keep they can keep it. Yeah. 
They, no, it, no, they have to reestablish this, the standards after Trump left. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Terramana so. tequila will go in trust until I leave office <laughs> in 2056. <laughs> All right. I think we should uh, wrap it up there for today. I want to thank uh, Patrick Wyman for coming on the show and hanging out with us. Uh, the book is The Verge. Um, we will include a link for to order it. Uh, I got to say, I got to give uh, I'm gonna give my plug for it. Um, this is not uh, this is not uh, bullshit pop history. If you're a true history head, this book will definitely you definitely fuck with this book. But if you're not, it is written in a very uh, like I said cinematic uh, style that is not it's not dry. It's propulsive. It's 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 uh, literary. Um, it, the Verge is great so thank you so much for Patrick for th thank you so much to Patrick for coming on the show and for writing the book hey thank you so much for the kind words and for having me it is absolutely my pleasure to talk with you guys alright cheers gang till next time bye bye come on with a common denominator